afternoon. I want to thank council for your flexibility. Next case is State versus Stewart, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, my name is Zachary Dunn, here on behalf of the state. While performing a, a massage as part of his job duties at a massage parlor in Charlotte, uh, Mr. Stewart sexually assaulted his client by digitally penetrating her at least five separate times. Uh, the defendant was con uh, convicted, and as relevant here, of sexual battery, but a unanimous panel of the Court of Appeals uh, vacated or reversed defendant's conviction, holding that the trial court lacked subject matter jurisdiction uh, over the offense uh, because the indictment charging defendant with sexual battery uh, was what the panel believed to be a fatal defect in that indictment. Uh, there are three ways for this court to resolve this case in the state's favor. Each three of the, all three of them are laid out in our brief, but because of this court's recent ruling in NRAJU, I would like to start uh, what, with what is the second argument in the briefs, uh, barring any questions, of course, on, on the first issue. Uh, but, uh, you know, the second issue for us is even if, an even if um, force is an essential element of battery, sexual battery, the indictment was sufficient uh, in this case. <clears throat> this court has held that an indictment must contain facts supporting each essential element. Uh, that's Rankin. Uh, but uh, in, in indictments on a statute, this court has further held, uh, the essential words descriptive of the offense or their just equivalent must be given. Um, and that's this court in Edwards. Um, but if I could, you know, in our briefs, we go through a number of this case, uh, court's older decisions, uh, most re uh, notably Johnson and Marsh, and explain how um, those cases make the indictment in this case sufficient. But I would like to jump right to JU, uh, if I might, uh, because this court just a couple months ago in JU said, consistent with a proper understanding of indictment jurisprudence and the express language of the statute at issue, a juvenile petition, it was a juvenile petition in this case, but uh, we think it applies just the same to indictments, uh, does not have to state every um, element of the offense charge, so long as the elements are clearly uh, inferable from the facts duly alleged. Um, and I would like to put the JU, the words, relevant words of the JU petition side by side with the words in this indictment, um, because they're strikingly similar. In the JU petition, um, this court found the following words to be sufficient, uh, that the, or the defendant in that case unlawfully and willfully engaged in sexual contact with the victim by touching her vaginal area against her will for the purpose of sexual gratification, uh, and putting that right up against the words in this indictment, uh, which say uh, that the defendant unlawfully and willfully for the purpose of sexual arousal engaged in sexual contact with another person, the victim, without her consent. Uh, so we think, you know, under the, this court's decision in JU, just looking at the similarities between the words in the, the juvenile petition in that case and the indictment here, uh, this court's holding in JU uh, decides this case in the state's favor. Um, barring any questions about that argument, I would like to uh, discuss the state's third argument, which is that this court should rule that indictment defects are not jurisdictional 
uh, in North Carolina. Um, and of course, this, could, this issue, the court doesn't need to address it, but we think in the interests of judicial economy, it should. This is a, a recurring problem. Uh, we cited a number of cases from the Court of Appeals where due to this court's current indictment jurisprudence, uh, the Court of Appeals was required to vacate uh, several um, convictions even when a defendant pleaded guilty because of course subject matter jurisdiction cannot be waived and can be brought any time. So even years and, and decades later, um, very frequently the Court of Appeals is required to vacate convictions uh, because of what's alleged to be a fatal indictment defect. Um, arguably this court has already held uh, that indictment defects are non-jurisdictional because in JU, uh, this court cited uh, then Chief Justice Martin's dissent in Rankin uh, with approval and held that the common law rule that defective indictments rob a court of jurisdiction is an obsolete rule that detrimentally impacts the administration of justice in our state. Uh, and again said that jurisdictional concerns uh, were a relic of the code pleading era, which is of course not what we have now uh, with the Criminal Procedure Act. Uh, the state agrees and thinks that this court should firmly hold that indictment defects are non-jurisdictional and therefore must be presented at trial and properly preserved in order to pursue an appeal uh, or collateral review on that issue. Um, of course, the state recognizes that applying the common law, this court has, at least since 1946 in Morgan, held that indictment defects are jurisdictional. Um, and we think the court should move away from that here, as it arguably started to do in JU, uh, because that inelastic concept of jurisdiction is not what the term jurisdiction means today. That's what the United States Supreme Court held when it overruled its own precedent in ex parte Bain, um, holding, again, in that old case that indictment defects were jurisdictional, but in its own opinion in Cotton in the early 2000s, uh, reversed that and said that they are not, at least for federal purposes. Um, you know, in, I'll just quote it from Cotton, the court's statutory or constitutional power to adjudicate a case um, is what subject matter jurisdiction means. Uh, and the, this concept of subject matter jurisdiction involves a court's power to hear a case and can never be forfeited or waived um, like this court has held, long held, at least since Morgan. Um, I would like to touch on the harms of the common law jurisdictional approach to uh, indictment defects um, because they're not theoretical. Uh, and I did mention it a little bit before, uh, but wanted to get into it a bit more. <clears throat> um, North Carolina criminal judgments are always subject to attack, not only on direct review, uh, but also collateral review versus, uh, through MARs, uh, again, years and decades after either a guilty plea, an Alfred plea, or a conviction, um, because um, indictment defects, this court has held, affects subject matter jurisdiction, and subject matter jurisdiction cannot be waived and can be brought at any time. Um, this occurs frequent, reoccurs frequently in the Court of Appeals. There is one case that we cited from 2022, State versus Edwards, uh, so a fairly recent case when the Court of Appeals had to wade into this same exact issue, um, had to decide whether an indictment was fatally defective because 
it alleged that the victim was Graham County Schools rather than the Graham County Board of Education. This is a case that uh, happened in 1994, uh, but in 2022, the court was required to uh, wade into this indictment defect question because, of course, it can't be waived and can be waived at any time, uh, even on collateral review. Um, and then we go ahead and cite a number of other cases, both from this court, or I'm sorry, they're all from the Court of Appeals. Uh, but for instance, uh, State versus Acklin, where an Alfred plea had to be undone because of an alleged defect in the indictment. Uh, Williams, a first degree murder conviction was, um, there was supposedly a fatal defect in the indictment there. Uh, and it goes on and on. Uh, Feltz was a negligent child abuse case. Uh, and um, there are more just like it. But we would urge the court to finish the work that it started in JU, um, where it said that um, the common law rule that defective indictments rob a court of jurisdiction is an obsolete rule, and firmly hold and you know, provide guidance both for the trial courts and the court of appeals uh, that indictment defects are no longer jurisdictional. Now, this, doesn't mean that a, um, an indictment defect can never be brought up. It just happens, it needs to happen at the trial court where it can be fixed. Uh, and if um, either the state fails to fix the indictment defect or the court rules against the defendant, that can then be brought up uh, on appellate review. Uh, but we really think making or, or Construing an indictment defect as non-jurisdictional would allow those problems to be fixed at the trial court level uh, or if they're preserved at the appellate level um, without having to do undo indictments years and decades later. Um, Justice Earls, you asked, I believe it was in Lancaster two sittings ago about the ex post facto clause and how that would affect uh, a change you know, from a common law jurisdictional approach to, to abandoning that. And I did not have an answer for you then, but I do have an answer for you now. Yes. Um, the memorandum of additional authority, which was filed this morning, I apologize and I hope that got to you all in time, uh, cited a number of cases from the United States Supreme Court and this court uh, on the ex post facto clause and how that's been interpreted um, for a change in law. Uh, and this court has held uh, that no one has um, a vested interest in this court's decision. And so a change in the decision can be applied. This is the, um, the Rivens case that we cited, can be applied in the case and all pending cases um, that were uh, that have not been finally decided on direct appeal. So that would be our answer. We don't think that there's an ex post facto clause problem here. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, I have plenty of time left, so I think I will touch on the first issue in the briefs, uh, which is the question of whether or not force is an element, actually an element of sexual battery. Um, the state, of course, recognizes the language of the sexual battery statute. There's no way to get around it. 14-27.33A1 uh, uses the term by force and against the will of the victim. Um, however, this court has held uh, in a number of cases, both Locklear and Henderson, 
as well as Brown, that the state need not prove force occurred in order to earn a conviction uh, under sexual battery, rape, all the other sexual offenses. Uh, because the term force can be found either through constructive force or through surprise. Um, you know, of course, constructive force is a term of art, but it's a term of art meaning that there was no actual force. Uh, and so uh, our argument on that first issue would be that simply uh, force is not an essential element because it would be um, incongruous for the court um, or for an indictment to include the word by force, but then the state need not prove that force occurred in order to earn a conviction. Um, so, of course, it is in the statute. It's a, it's a tough argument. Um, you know, we think we have uh, easier ways to win on the second and third arguments. Um, but because the state need not prove force, uh, our first submission, that, that primary submission, would be simply that force is not an, an essential element of the crime. And am I correct that if we do agree with you on either the second or third argument, we don't need to reach this question? Absolutely. Yeah, there would be no, no reason to reach that issue. Um, unless there are any questions um, from the court, we would uh, urge this court to find uh, either that under NRAJU, uh, the indictment in this case uh, was sufficient, or in the interest of judicial economy, uh, find that indictment defects are not jurisdictional in North Carolina. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, your honors. May it please the court. My name is Sterling Rozier. I'm with the Office of the Appellate Defender present Mr. Stewart. Um, your Honors, this case is exceedingly straightforward. Uh, the state drafted a faulty indictment, they omitted an essential element, and because it was faulty, the Court of Appeals followed the law as it has been essentially forever. Um, and it followed the law as it is written in the statutes um, and is evident in the General Assembly's intent and it vacated Mr. Stewart's conviction. And the issue at play here is so straightforward that the Court of Appeals resolved this in a four-page unpublished opinion. Um, and in response to this, the, to fix the situation that the state itself caused, the state argues that this court should pretend that force isn't an element of an indictment or an offense that's defined by statute as requiring force or failing that that this court should pretend that an indictment which doesn't contain an allegation of force somehow does, or failing that, that we should just get rid of any requirement that indictments allege elements at all and say that they're, they're you know, no longer say that they deprive uh, courts of jurisdiction. And, and in doing so, ignore the many statutes providing exactly the opposite. And of course, this court should do no such thing. It should affirm the lower court's ruling because it's plainly correct, it's always been correct, and it will only become incorrect if this court changes the law now. Um, obviously, I think the elephant in the room is JU, um, so I will uh, first uh, point out why I don't think that JU controls um, in this case. Uh, and I think there are two reasons, um, and the first of them is that JU involved juvenile petitions. It did not involve criminal procedure. And to the extent that the holding of JU may reflect uh, relaxation of pleading requirements in juvenile cases, um, it can't apply here because the, the statutes governing procedure in those cases are, are simply different. Um, 
unlike the juvenile code, I don't think that the Criminal Procedure Act allows for the sort of um, liberal interpretation of the statutes that uh, the court applied in JU. Uh, because unlike the juvenile code, here we have to grapple not only with 15A924, um, but also with 15A1442, 46, um, and 47. And I, I say that um, the, the holding can't apply because JU um, would conflict with a textualist interpretation of these statutes. Um, it would also uh, conflict with an intentionalist interpretation. I mean, either of the sort of two major schools of interpretation, you don't arrive at the same result um, when looking at the criminal statutes, right? A textualist interpretation wants to know what the original public meaning of the language in the statutes are, and we have two clues as to that. Um, first, uh, when, when 15A924 uh, was enacted and it said that you need to you know, provide alleged facts supporting each essential element. When the courts interpreted that, they thought it meant alleging elements. Um, so at the time, everybody seemed to think that that meant continuing to plead essential elements. Uh, but the best evidence of the original public meaning of that language is when the General Assembly, four years later, practically contemporaneously for this type of analysis, amended the Criminal Procedure Act to add the rules governing appeals, they included several statutes explicitly referring uh, to 15A924 and saying that that statute requires pleading each essential element. And so they clearly show us that, that the original meaning of this language is that elements must be pled and they did not intend for this sort of loose, fact-based interpretation that, that JU applied to the juvenile code. Well, so, so what do you make of Oldroyd, though, that says uh, in, in order to satisfy uh, statutory and constitutional requirements, all that's required uh, is that uh, there, there's enough pled uh, so that the defendant can prepare a defense and um, uh, can protect against double jeopardy? I mean, I think that Oldroyd, I mean, Oldroyd ultimately held that all of the essential elements were, were pled, so that, that comment about... Um, sort of quoting the language of the statute and then ultimately applying it in a case where they said we need to look at whether the elements are there doesn't really conflict with the, the analysis I'm proposing. Um, now I said that... Uh, well, but, but Oldroy does say to satisfy statutory strictures, right? That, that all that is necessary is um, you be able to prepare defense and be able to... Um, satisfy double jeopardy concerns. And I, I don't recall seeing in your brief any argument uh, that you weren't able to prepare a defense or your, the defendant wasn't able to prepare a defense uh, and, and that there were double jeopardy concerns, unless I missed it. Uh, those arguments were not raised because again, we were arguing about the elements um, in the, uh, in the, that were pled in the indictment and what wasn't pled in the indictment. Um, but again, I mean, the, the holding of Oldroyd was simply that the essential elements were pled. And so any commentary about uh, what else may be required or what, what might be sufficient in other cases, um, that's not the holding. I think that would be, be dicta or commentary. I mean, the, the fact that this court has, for the past 50 years, continued to affirm cases where the elements are pled shows that that is, I mean, that is how the, the law has, been interpreted. Um, I, I mentioned 
a different approach to statutory interpretation and intentionalism. Um, and I think that we have strong evidence from, from the, the, the same things I mentioned earlier, that this was also what the General Assembly intended. Because, again, we have the, the, the Criminal Procedure Act uh, being adopted in 1973, and our courts interpreted that as requiring the pleading of elements. And then when the General Assembly added the new statutes, they, they added language saying, yes, this does mean elements. So it's, it's like legislative acquiescence, but it's more than that. It's, it's legislative endorsement. It's legislative uh, approval. Um, and then since those statutes were added in, in 1979, the appellate uh, criminal procedural rules, the General Assembly has not changed the statutes. And, and the court has continued to require elements. Um, and it didn't change the statutes after Cotton was decided, and it didn't change the statutes after Chief Justice Martin, uh, in his dissent in Rankin, invited them to revisit them. So I think it's hard to find a, a more clear case of, of legislative acquiescence or legislative approval. Um, so I, I, I don't think that the reasoning of JU, that statutory in, interpretation in JU of the juvenile code, applies to this case. But if it does, I still think there are significant differences between JU and this case. And this gets a little bit, um, Justice Berger, to what you were talking about, um, about notice. Um, and again, I think the, the holding of JU is that, that you know, conduct that is alleged to have occurred against the victim's will is sufficient to put a person on notice that it happened forcibly. Um, and I know JU uses some words saying, uh, some language saying magic words aren't required, but I think that the holding of JU actually just puts us in, in magic words territory because now we need to decide, well, there's different words in, in my indictment. My indictment, uh, Mr. Stewart's indictment, uh, says that it was done without her consent. And, and this court has not yet held whether a, uh, without her consent is supplies notice of, of force. Um, they're, they're different words, and so we need to address that. And I, I think that uh, doing something against a person's will, that language is more suggestive of force than, than without their consent. Against suggests opposition, suggests overcoming resistance, which is, is the language uh, often used in sex offense cases to talk about the sufficiency of, of force. Um, and without consent means without permission. Um, and there are ways where a touching could occur without consent but not be forcible. Um, especially uh, in the context where, where consent can be withdrawn. So a touching may occur, the, the sort of act of touching, uh, but then at some point later, while you know the two people are still in contact, consent is withdrawn and there's no force continuing that touching. So, so I think that would not be uh, a non-consensual, or that would be, that would be non-consensual, but not forcible. Um, but in terms of, of strictly notice, um, I, it has not been argued, but I, I don't believe that, that Mr. Stewart had notice that he was going to be required to hold the state to its burden of proving force, because that's not here. And I, when we talk about providing notice and the ability to prepare a defense, um, as this court noted in JU, we're, we're looking at whether a person of common understanding would know what was intended. And but, but didn't, didn't the defendant file a motion to suppress, uh, a, a motion in limine regarding 404B evidence where, where he puts forth the evidence that was uh, uh, 
that, that was supposedly against him. So, I, I mean, I'm having difficulty understanding how, uh, even, even though it's not raised in, in your brief, that, that, that you can argue the defendant wasn't on notice as to what was um, uh, being alleged against him. I think the analysis we, we have to undertake here in the indictment is to look at whether the language of the indictment would put a reasonable or a, a person of common understanding on notice. So we're looking at the sufficiency of the pleading, not you know what may have happened afterwards. Um, and and so we have to decide whether these words are sufficient to put a person of common common understanding on notice. And, and again, I think a pro se litigant who sees this charging document would would not think that the state was required to prove beyond the things that are actually alleged also force. I don't think they would be on notice that they would be required to, that they should move to dismiss at the close of the state's evidence if the state doesn't present evidence of additional force. Um, or if the, if the trial court were to instruct the jury in accordance with the language of the indictment, right, that would be erroneous. It would, it would not comply with the statute. It would not comply with what the elements are. Um, but if it matches the indictment, uh, you know, the, the defendant in that case sh should know that they should object to those instructions. And I, and I don't think that this indictment puts them on, on that kind of notice. So I, I don't agree uh, that notice is all that is required, as, as I talked about before, because of the statutory analysis. But if it is, if, if this court expands the holding of JU beyond uh, juvenile petitions, then, then I don't think that that notice uh, requirement is satisfied. Um, and your honors, the, the state sort of came back around to talking about, um, I guess, a slightly interrelated question. Their argument about uh, force isn't even an element in these statutes. Um, and I'm honestly a little bit surprised that they bothered to go there after JU because JU says that force is an element. They say that, that this indictment is sufficient to plead the element of force. So I, I don't know how, why, why we would still be trying to argue that force isn't an element. But there's also this thing that um, I think we're just going to have to disagree. But the state says that force isn't an element because you may prove force by constructive force. Right? Constructive force is not not force. It's constructive force. It's a type of force. And constructive force can be used to prove the element of force. But just because something can be proved by constructive means doesn't mean that force isn't required at all. Um, but to the extent that, that JU suggests that, that force and, and something being done against their will are sort of the same thing, um, I do want to respond uh, briefly to something that, that I, I thought of after I received the, the state's memorandum of additional authority last night. And, um, I hope you'll forgive me for not uh, having this fully fleshed out. I, I haven't had much time to think about it, but when I was looking at these cases, I did notice that, you know, if we are saying that force is no longer a separate element, if force is just non-consent, if that's all it is, then I think that uh, JU um, essentially uh, changed the law, the substantive law, in a way such that a conviction could be obtained on less evidence than was required um, before. And, and I think that that type of retroactive application of judicial applications does derive, uh, deprive the defendant of due process. 
It's sort of ex post facto when it's done by the General Assembly and it's due process when it's done by a court. Um, so it's sort of an ex post facto argument, but, but it's due process. And, and that's um, from State v. Robinson, 335 NC 146, 1993. And I will happily submit a memorandum of additional authority on any of these ex post facto things we discuss. Um, with regard to the specific conviction here, uh, was there any problem with the uh, trial judge's charge to the jury on this? Um, Your Honor, not, not that I uh, remember at the moment, and I, we, we didn't argue. Um, well, the trial judge specifically says the contact was by force and against the will of the other person. The force necessary to constitute sexual battery may not be actual physical force. Fear or coercion may take the place of physical force. Do you agree with that? I think that's an accurate statement of the law. I mean, and I, I think what they're talking about there, that's constructive force, right? That, you know, I, I think the state, that, that, that instruction is a great example of, of the, where I think the state is sort of off the rails a little bit with this constructive force argument, because um, the state is reading the force word in the statute as requiring actual physical force, right? And that's not what's required. It's force, whether it's constructive or physical. Um, and I think that instruction uh, uh, sums it up. Um, but that's, that's JU. And, and if you agree with everything I've said about JU, uh, then we have to talk about the state's third argument. And the state suggests that we have to talk about it anyway, and I, I don't think that would be appropriate. Um, JU didn't talk about it. Uh, but the question of whether indictments are jurisdictional, whether a defective indictment deprives the court of, of jurisdiction, um, I mean, that's a, big, that's a big question, right? There's a lot to be said about it. I think there were a few things that I noted in the state's um, argument and in their reply brief that I, I'd like to address. Uh, the first is that the state has said a couple of times in their argument that the common law rule goes back to Morgan in the 1940s. And my understanding is that the common law rule goes back to at least State v. Gallimore in the 1840s. And, and it, Gallimore cites other cases, this is, this is in our brief, um, but Gallimore cites other cases that suggest that it goes back much further than that. Um, so this isn't, you know, th this is a, a foundational rule that as far as I understand it has always been the law. Um, and I don't think that anyone disagrees with that. I mean, even in the Rankin dissent, like the, the problem with this rule, according to Chief Justice Martin, is that it's obsolete, right? Because it's so old, it's, it's been around for too long. Um, but that's all the more reason why we should be very careful before we, we overrule it. We have stare decisis, and are we going to abandon that for some purpose? And the state has presented a number of policy arguments, and I submit that those policy arguments are best had before the General Assembly, not before this court. And that is partly because I think that the statutes evince the intent of the General Assembly to retain this rule, that indictments are jurisdictional. Um, one specific thing that I, I, I filed in a memorandum of additional authority to point out is that um, in the state's brief, it says that uh, the Constitution and our general statutes conferred general, um, original general jurisdiction upon superior courts in state criminal cases. 
neither source of law conditions that subject matter jurisdiction on the existence or sufficiency of an indictment. And I, I think that is an inaccurate statement of the law because original exclusive jurisdiction for misdemeanors is in the district court. And the only way uh, the superior court can obtain jurisdiction over a misdemeanor is in certain uh, instances uh, provided in 78271, including when the charge has been uh, initiated by a presentment or when it has been consolidated for trial with the felony, as happened here. Um, but uh, proper consolidation with a felony requires a proper pleading and an indictment with the rules of 15A924. Um, so I'm not sure that uh, it's accurate to say that, that indictments have nothing to do with jurisdiction, at least when we're talking about misdemeanors in superior court. Um, but beyond that, there's sort of a more fundamental question, which is that the, the appellate criminal procedure statutes provide that failing to allege all essential elements of uh, a criminal charge in a pleading is a failure to charge a crime. And if the pleading fails to charge a crime, then what does the court have jurisdiction over? I mean, this document is what invokes the jurisdiction of the court. Um, so I don't think it's it's as simple as saying, oh, well, indictments don't have anything to, jurisdiction, to do with jurisdiction. I think, I think that they do. But the other point uh, that I want to address uh, before I uh, bore you all too much um, is, is sort of this idea that, that this court could absolutely overrule centuries of case law and abandon stare decisis and decide that as a common law matter, the court no longer views indictments as jurisdictional and no longer views a failure to allege essential elements as depriving the court of jurisdiction. And I don't think that would solve the problem that the state um, has, has brought to you because the statutes still clearly say that essential elements must be alleged and that the failure to allege essential elements is something that can be raised for the first time on appeal, it can be brought at any time, and it requires reversal and vacator. So even if even if you say the common law rule no longer holds, we still have to contend with the statutes. And the result in this case will still be reversal because of those statutes. And the fact that those statutes exist, I think sort of undermines the rank and dissent and, and sort of this analysis based on that, that we've moved away from this. We, the General Assembly didn't intend for indictments to be treated as jurisdictional because we have this language suggesting that they, they did. And I would point out, you know, there, there's, there's words that get used in these cases where this court says, we've clearly, in, we, you know, the General Assembly has intended to relax pleading requirements and no longer hold us to these um, uh, specific um, archaic technicalities. Um, and I think that's true. That's absolutely true. The Criminal Procedure Act did just that. But they, they explicitly retained elements pleading and its jurisdictional nature. Um, and, and so while it is true that we have a more relaxed pleading policy now, it, it, it does not follow that, that you know, the, the way they did relax the rules shows that they intended to do the thing they explicitly didn't do. Um, and so I think this, you know, the state is asking this court to help them solve a problem, the problem that, that these that, that people are, are getting indictments, uh, getting convictions thrown out after the fact because of a faulty indictment. And I don't think that this court ruling that the common law rule 
should be done away with will accomplish that goal. Um, I think that what would uh, accomplish that goal is for the state to draft indictments properly. That's always been the solution. That's all they've ever needed to do. They say this is a recurring problem. And the reason it's a recurring problem is because they continue to not follow the law and draft indictments improperly. That's how we fix the problem, not changing the law to make the rules different. Um, and I wanted to address one more point about ex post facto, and this gets to the, the question that I believe uh, the state was answering with its memorandum. And again, uh, apologies for, for this being somewhat unpublished. Uh, um, unpolished. Um, this issue hasn't been briefed, so I want to be cautious. But um, I think that technically, as I mentioned earlier, a judicial decision is not an ex post facto concern. Um, but a judicial decision that does something that would be, um, if it were done legislatively, is a due process uh, concern. Um, and there's uh, just a couple more citations I want to provide the court, and I will submit a memorandum of additional authority. Uh, but those cases are Rogers v. Tennessee, uh, 532 U.S. 451. 2001 and Bowie versus Columbia, that's B-O-U-I-E versus Columbia, 378 U.S. 347, 1964. And the specific quote I want to draw your attention to in Rogers is that we have observed, um, however, that limitations on ex post facto judicial decision making are inherent in the notion of due process. Uh, that's at page 456. And then from Bowie, um, when a state court overrules a consistent line of procedural decisions with the retroactive effect of denying a litigant a hearing in a pending case, it thereby deprives him due process of law. Um, and so I think that suggests that overruling a, a procedural rule uh, can still be violative of, of due process. And that's from Bowie at uh, 354. And then there was one quote that I saw when I was trying to read the cases cited by the state in their MAA. Uh, that I think is relevant, I hope it is. Um, uh, but uh, it would be unreasonable to think that parties would operate under the quote, belief that the court of last resort in the state would so vacillate in its decisions as to give two radically different constructions to the same words. A court would stultify itself if it should hold that parties should have acted upon any such belief. And that's um, Hill v. Uh, Atlantic in North Carolina, uh, something company, I'm sorry, the citation is 143 NC 53, 1906. That was one of the cases the state cited, and I'm just not sure what all those um, abbreviations <laughs> in the title mean. Um, but, but I think that suggests that, that Mr. Stewart, at all times, before today or, or, or possibly before JU, the law was that this indictment was bad and it must be vacated. And it would be unreasonable to think that Mr. Stewart would have operated under the belief that this court would so vacillate in its decisions as to give two radically different constructions to the same words. And I think that really gets to all we have been asking for, um, which is that this court recognize what the law has always been, that the Court of Appeals got it right, and apply the remedy that has been appropriate in every case like this forever, at least since the 1840s. And if there are no further questions, I will stop. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. <clears throat> yes.
Yes, Your Honor. Uh, thank you. Just briefly, and may please the court. Um, and again, I apologize both to the court and to my opposing counsel for that memorandum of additional authority coming so late. Uh, frankly, uh, Justice Earl's questions popped up in my head last night, and I knew that I wanted to get her an answer to those ex post facto questions. So certainly, um, that you know something that we may not be entirely ready to to talk about fully, but. On that due process question, um, I would like to point out, you know, opposing counsel said you know, the law has been the same since the 1840s, which, you know, I've tracked it at least to 1946. That's entirely possible that it could be the 1840s. Um, but, and, you know, Mr. Stewart didn't know that, uh, Jay, you would come out, the law might change, we might ask the court to do away with the common law jurisdictional approach. Um, but at the time of trial, uh, this defendant, Mr. Stewart, had 15A 924A5, uh, which says uh, that an indictment, a charging document such as an indictment must have a plain and concise factual statement in each count which asserts facts supporting every element of a criminal offense and the defendant's commission thereof. Uh, now, if Mr. Stewart wanted to raise a question or a problem with the indictment, he thought that the indictment did not sufficiently um, alleged force, uh, he could have under 15A 924A5 stood up in the trial court and said, hey, Your Honor, uh, we don't believe that this indictment uh, alleges all the uh, essential elements, every element of this criminal offense. Uh, but of course, there's no reason to do that at the trial court at this time uh, because common uh, um, indictment defects are jurisdictional. Um, why, you know, there's, I, I'm not suggesting any gamesmanship on the part of uh, my opposing counsel here or the trial counsel below, but just generally there's no reason to bring up an indictment defect as a defendant in a criminal case uh, because it's essentially a do-over. You're, you're able to raise that at any time uh, and get a conviction vacated. Um, so there's just no reason to do it at the trial court at this time because of this course adherence to that common law um, jurisdictional approach. Um, with regard to JU, um, Opposing counsel tries to cabin JU just to um, uh, juvenile petitions and says that the rule is indifferent for indictments. I don't know why the rule would be less strenuous in the juvenile setting, but more strenuous in the adult setting. Uh, doesn't seem to make any sense. And this court didn't seem in JU to cabin its holding just to juvenile petitions. This court cited to many uh, adult cases where indictments were involved, um, cited to Old Royd and uh, the dissent in Rankin, and so we just believe that JU applies equally to indictments as it does to juvenile petitions and should decide this, uh, this case in the state's favor, especially considering that the, um, the words of the juvenile petition and the words of this indictment are nearly identical. Um, and then finally, on the common law jurisdictional uh, approach, um, again, we talked about it, it may entirely be uh, the 1840s, and, and uh, opposing counsel did cite to a portion of my brief where it says the North Carolina Constitution and our general statutes confer original general jurisdiction upon the superior courts of the state, uh, and neither source of law, either the Constitution or the statutes, um, conditions that subject matter jurisdiction on the ex uh, existence or sufficiency of an indictment. Um, I, I would uh, like to tweak that a little bit instead of upon the superior courts of the state, of course, it would be 
the, the general courts of justice of the state. We don't think that that makes any difference here. Of course, yes, um, the, this is a misdemeanor charge, the sexual battery, so the original jurisdiction would have been in the, in the district court, uh, but for uh, the defendant being also charged with a felony, uh, which had both of the cases consolidated and, and being in the superior court. But we think that the, uh, um, you know, th there's no change in, in our argument there except for, you know, superior courts and general court of justice. Um, and I would like to sort of end with a, a um, quote that we put in our brief. It's page nine of the reply brief from the Kansas Supreme Court, uh, which says that Charging documents do not bestow or confer subject matter jurisdiction on state courts to adjudicate criminal cases. The Kansas Constitution does. Uh, we think the same exact thing is true here in North Carolina, and this court should hold, uh, along with the modern, uh, all the modern courts, we did cite, I think, six or seven in footnote five of our original brief of states across the country doing away with the common law jurisdictional approach, and we think that this court should do the same here. Can I, can I just ask you to respond to the argument that um, if, if this court says that, that defects in the indictment are not jurisdictional, that still doesn't get the state to where you would like us to be because there are statutory provisions. And in particular, um, I believe I'm correct that it's 15A-952D says that motions concerning jurisdiction of the court or the failure of the pleading to charge an offense may be made at any time. So how do, how do we reconcile that there does seem to be some statutory authority for the notion that if the, if the indictment doesn't um, allege, uh, uh, doesn't charge an, an offense because it doesn't allege all the elements of the crime, that that can be raised at any time? Um, that's, that's a very good question, Your Honor. I still think that this, uh, doing away with the common law jurisdictional approach would, uh, get us where we want to go. Um, isn't it that a statute can't, if it's a question of appellate procedure like issue preservation, the North Carolina Constitution says that this court defines the appellate procedure. Hasn't there been some past cases about that with the rules of evidence and other things? Yes, I think, I think so, Your Honor. But, but isn't this a rule about criminal procedure generally? I mean, it doesn't only apply on appeal. Um, without, candidly, without it being in front of me, Your Honor, I, I will struggle to, to answer. Um, but we do think, um, you know, statutory provisions, normally uh, uh, issues must be raised at the trial court and preserved before uh, they can be brought on appeal. Um, and so we would, we would simply um, suggest that doing away with the common law jurisdictional approach would put this court in line with all the modern courts uh, throughout the country. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Again, thank you both.